You may not think that a visit by the U.S. Health Secretary is a big deal, but it is. In today's Taiwan Insider, we're going to tell you why. I'm Natalie So. And I'm Andrew Ryan. First, a look at the stories on our radar. U.S. Secretary of Health and Human Services Alex Azar has visited Taiwan, becoming the highest-ranked U.S. cabinet member to do so since the U.S. and Taiwan broke off diplomatic ties in 1979. During his trip, Azar met with President Tsai Ing-wen and Foreign Minister Joseph Wu. He was also here for the signing of a Memorandum of Understanding to expand cooperation in the area of global health. President Tsai Ing-wen has condemned the arrest of Hong Kong democracy activists, including Jimmy Lai, the founder of Next Media and Apple Daily, which are often critical of Beijing. Lai is among those who have fallen afoul of a new national security bill governing Hong Kong. Tsai said that attempts to block the will of the Hong Kong people will not succeed. The Coast Guard has arrested a 45-year-old Chinese man for entering Taiwan illegally. The man says he swam from the coastal Chinese city of Xiamen to a Taiwan-administered island just off the coast of China. Due to fears about COVID-19, the man's case will only proceed after he has been held in quarantine for two weeks. After 10 years of planning and construction, a new Taipei landmark is finally ready to open its doors. The Taipei Music Center will open on September 5th with indoor and outdoor concerts, and it will host the annual Golden Melody Awards in October. Mazu is known as the goddess of the sea in Taiwan, but pilgrims here will carry her statue just about anywhere, even to the top of Yushan, Taiwan's highest peak. One Mazu statue from Taichung recently made its fifth ascent of Yushan, carried by worshippers, showing that their devotion reaches even the highest of heights. And now for our words of the week, Andrew. Guess my word. Uh, Alexa. Alexa. Uh, all, all purpose. All uh, allies. That's right. <laughs> so we're talking about U.S.-Taiwan ties. We just saw a big visit from the U.S. Health Secretary, and it shows that U.S. ties are strong, and we are allies in many ways. Excellent. You ready for my word? Mm -hmm. All right, here we go. President, Pre proceeding, precedent, precedent. There we go. So the question is, is this uh, visit by the Secretary of Health and Human Services, Alex Azar, uh, we know it's a big visit. Is it going to set a precedent for more big visits from the U.S. in the future? We're going to be talking about that in our show today. All right, let's put these on the shelf. This week, Taiwan saw the highest ranking U.S. official visit since 1979. The U.S. Secretary of Health and Human Services, Alex Azar, came for a four-day visit. Here's what he had to say about the trip. The particular focus of both my discussions with President Tsai and of our trip is highlighting Taiwan's success on health in combating COVID-19 and cooperating with the United States to prevent, detect, and respond to health threats. The U.S. and Taiwan also signed an MOU on health cooperation during Azar's visit. Today, I am pleased that TECRO and AIT have signed a Memorandum of Understanding to formalize the more than 20 years of collaboration between my department and the Ministry of Health and Welfare on a wide range of issues. Now, to learn more about Azar's visit, Natalie recently sat down with one of Taiwan's top health experts. It's former CDC Director Steve Guo, 
who is currently the president of National Yami University. Have a look. What do you think the main purpose of um, Health Secretary Azar's visit is to Taiwan? Right. Uh, obviously, is multiple purpose. Mm. Right. It's not only for the health cooperation bilaterally, but I think it's both for the geopolitical uh, purpose and probably for some domestic politics as well. Yeah. Can you elaborate on what you think is? Sure. I think for the uh, uh, collaboration on the health sides, if they can sit on and talk, then they really can kind of open up a door for the working levels uh, to do more. So I think it's very important for the uh, both countries on the pandemic uh, control, the majors collaborations. But I think also is obviously, I think it's a uh, strong signal uh, from the Washingtons to show the world and also for his people that uh, they uh, want to have a very strong support uh, for Taiwan, uh, not only for health security, but in general security as well. So I think it's basically, uh, uh, it's very good uh, for uh, Taiwan. And, and I guess people will say it's also, uh, it's a way of Trump, President Trump to show uh, is different. Uh, from all uh, his uh, predecessors, that he doesn't f- uh, he doesn't fear uh, CCP mm. of China, right? You know, uh, in the past, never before, uh, there's a president of United States there to send a uh, high-ranking uh, officers like uh, Secretary of Health to come to Taiwan to spend four days, not one days. Uh, you have to understand, you know, for a busy. Uh, health uh, secretary uh, to to spend four days in Taiwan, uh, it meant a lot. And mm-hmm. so I think it must be a multiple purpose. You know, that's really interesting. I had no idea that a four-day visit by a health secretary from the United States would be such a big deal. I didn't know that either. He says he doesn't even travel that long to go to the World Health Assembly in Geneva. Wow. So it's a big deal. And I also asked him what he thinks the U.S. should learn most from Taiwan. I will say one thing, you know, during the SARS outbreak of two or threes, we, th- we learned that, uh, uh, you know, the uh, major uh, infectious disease outbreak is, is need to be treated as a national security. Hmm. So before that, actually, Taiwan polit- political figures uh, don't believe that. But after the SARS outbreak, everyone, I mean, they will, uh, they will understand that uh, infectious disease is truly a national security, you know, let alone uh, the uh, pandemic uh, uh, like this. And so if you treat it as a national security, mm. then you need to centralize the command and control. Mm-hmm. You know, it's probably difficult in the United States, but remember, U.S. has been done this before, right after 9-11. Actually, because of the fear of anthrax attack, actually, U.S. do a pretty good job, you know, try to, uh, to some degree, centralize the command. So, uh, you know, the system won't be uh, fragmented as we uh, have seen uh, recently. 
Now that's really interesting. Uh, Nally, I'm, I'm curious to know, did he mention anything else he thinks that the U.S. can learn from Taiwan? He did. He said Taiwan's national health care system was uh, very effective in helping control the pandemic. Of course, it would be very hard for the U.S. to emulate it, but they could have a national database to help them do things like Russian masks, like we did. So there's a lot that they can learn uh, from Taiwan. Yeah, well, hopefully they can implement some of those things, right? Yeah. Well, now we've already mentioned that Azar is the top-ranking U.S. official to visit Taiwan since 1979, and that got us thinking: What other top U.S. officials have visited in the last 41 years? That's the subject of today's Taiwan Explained. It's not every day that top-ranking U.S. officials visit Taiwan. In today's Taiwan Explained, we're going to tell you just how rare it is. And to tell us all about it is Catherine Wei. Welcome, Catherine. Hi. So this visit by the U.S. Secretary of Health and Human Services, Alex Azar, was a big deal. Tell us why. Azar's visit drew a lot of attention. That's because he's the highest-ranking U.S. cabinet official to visit Taiwan since the two countries cut formal ties in 1979. And so by highest-ranking, what you're saying is there's a line of succession to the presidency, right? Yes. So if anything happens to the current president, Azar is 12th in line. And I guess that something would have to happen to the next 11 people as well, <laughs> right, right? the first 11 people. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, well, tell us what other top um, U.S. officials have visited Taiwan since 1979. So there were six in total, if you count Azar, and three of them visited during President Li Donghui's term. U.S. Trade Representative Carla Anderson Hills visited Taiwan in 1992. Secretary of Transportation Federico Peña visited two years later in 1994. Secretary of Energy Bill Richardson visited in 1998. Since then, all the other presidents have only received one top U.S. official during their time in office. Secretary of Transportation Rodney Slater visited when Chen Shui-bian was president in year 2000. EPA Chief Gina McCarthy visited during Ma Ying-jeou's term in 2014. And now, the most recent visitor is Secretary of Health Alex Azar. He probably won't be the last cabinet official to visit Taiwan. That's because of the Taiwan Travel Act, which U.S. President Donald Trump signed into law in 2018. This act encourages high-level visits by U.S. officials to Taiwan and vice versa. So essentially, that's just six officials in the last 41 years. That's, that's right. not that many. But it will be interesting to see how things develop with the Taiwan Travel Act in place. Thanks again, Catherine. And uh, that is our Taiwan Explained for the week. This week on Hashtag Taiwan, I want to talk to you about airplanes. And no, I'm not talking about the 1980 comedy film starring Leslie Nielsen, classic as it may be. Can you fly this plane and land it? Surely you can't be serious. I am serious. And don't call me Shirley. So far, it's been a very interesting week for Taiwan. Two high-profile delegations arrived in Taiwan on Sunday. One is that of U.S. Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar, and the other is former Japanese Prime Minister Yoshiro Mori. Many leaders above a certain level from other countries are hesitant to come to Taiwan. That's because they're afraid of angering China. The world is going through a pandemic right now, so many aspects of state visits have been either changed or streamlined. Taiwan has one major international airport. That's Taiwan Taoyuan International Airport, which is located about 50 kilometers outside of Taipei. Diplomatic delegations usually arrive at that airport, but because of the pandemic, the two delegations arrived here. Taipei Songshan International Airport. It's a smaller international airport and generally used for short-haul or domestic flights. But it's located smack dab in the middle of the city, 
Why is that important? Because people in the bustling city of Taipei were able to see the planes from the US and Japan as they landed. On Sunday morning, pictures of the incoming planes flooded social media. It was a rare sight because both delegations arrived on charter jets. Azar flew in on a custom US Air Force Boeing C-40B aircraft, which was painted like Air Force One, the plane the US president flies on. It was a very distinct entrance, one that paved the way for this picture, which makes a statement on the strengthening ties between Taiwan and the US. On the other hand, Yoshiro Mori came in on a charter jet run by Japanese company Universal Entertainment. Not that universal. That company operates only one plane, so it was easy to differentiate from other planes. People captured pictures of both planes landing and described them as historic. Neither of the delegations had to undergo quarantine, but they both had to be tested extensively for COVID before coming to Taiwan. While many things have come to a standstill during this pandemic, it's good to know that diplomacy is still taking off and it's cleared for landing. Today's brain game is a top 10, and Andrew and Kat have 90 seconds to guess as many things on this top 10 list. Now, this was curated from two travel websites, um, Lonely Planet and Hotels.com. We'll be talking about Kaohsiung because we're oh. going to elect a new mayor <laughs> in a by-election on Saturday. Wait, do you know anything about Kaohsiung? <laughs> no, not really. We're so you guys are going to guess as many as you can. <laughs> Tell me the top 10 destinations in Kaohsiung. Go. Good. Very good. Uh, Liu Tan. Nope. That's on, on the list. It's not on the list. Um, uh, Keep guessing. There's more things to places to go. Uh, maybe the um, the the harbor. <laughs> <laughs> Much more. Okay. What can you do at the harbor? There's um, some you places can, you can go. Bor uh, That's right. Oh, the pier, like the that's pier to art center. Baodalo. Uh, that's right, the 85 Sky Tower, the highest building yeah. in Kaohsiung. Um, you can go... Um, we're terrible at this. Uh, <laughs> oh, wait, So San Zhu. That, that is that's one, but it's not on the list. Oh. Sorry, hmm. I don't know. That's a that nice destination. Um, oh, this is hard, man. They're night markets, I bet. The World Game Stadium. That, that is a good... Place to go. It's not on the list. That's your thing. Was that what you were? I... The the Leoha Night Market. Leo, That's right. Leoha Night right? Market. Sorry, Very I good. That. That's okay. <laughs> I don't know a thing. Um, can you give us a hint? Gosh, on city government to see the new okay. mayor. Where do people? Oh, yeah. <laughs> where do people like to uh, go on a gondola? <gasps> oh, there's Mal a gondola. Malcolm in Taipei, right? <laughs> Sun Moon Lake. <laughs> or take a nice walk. That's right. Oh. I love the river. Okay. Um, I forgot that one. There's a beautiful work of glass, the biggest in the world. Um, Formosa Boulevard Station. That's it's right. The MRT station, right? Very yes. good. Um, that's it. There's a new yeah. art center. Okay, well, let's see. <laughs> um, you guys have tied, so try for a tiebreaker. A tiebreaker? <gasps> oh, name man. anything on this list. <sighs> What's um, the name of the new art center there? Beautiful. I have something else. But you can say the other thing. Say. Uh, the sunset at Zhongshan University. Oh, that's a good oh, one. That's a good actually. one. It's on the, the list, pop music center. Is there like a music center? Oh, no, no, no. Oh, Wei that's Wing. true. Wei Wing. Wei Wing was, was on the list. Yeah. <gasps> There's a lot of things to do in Kaohsiung. So, okay, Andrew won this round. <laughs> There's also a Museum of Fine Arts that's very oh. beautiful. An old British consulate has a great oh, view. The Takao. Right. And also yeah. the Lotus Lake, which has a tiger and dragon pagodas. So, lots of great things to do in Kaohsiung. Okay. And is it, uh, thanks is for it all the Lotus other ideas. Lake? Isn't that Liu Yutan? No? 
Okay. Anyway, oh, I don't mean, know. is it? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I don't know. Okay, if it is, I'll give you an extra point. I'll look it up. <laughs> that is our uh, brain game for the week. Are you ready to take the Taiwan news quiz? This is our lightning round. That means we have 60 seconds on the clock. And in the hot seat today, we have Natalie So and Leslie Liao. Are you guys ready? I'm ready. I guess so. Are you ready at home? All right, you can take it right along with us. Go. On Monday, Taiwan welcomed the first representative from where? The U.S. Somaliland. Oh. Somaliland. Oh. A blow to freedom of the press. That's how President Tsai described the arrest of who on Monday? That's right. He is the media mogul from Hong Kong, the founder of Next Media and Apple Daily. Crowds of people headed up into the mountains north of Taipei late on Wednesday night. What were they hoping to see? Perseid media shower. That's right. Uh, what European mayor is set to visit Taipei Prague. at the end of August as part of a 90-person delegation? Prague. Yes, 90. Prague. That is wow. correct. Prague Mayor Zdeniek Hlib. He's going to be uh, traveling with the president <laughs> of the Czech Senate. The Taiwan International Balloon Festival is underway until August 30th. Now it was delayed due to the pandemic and they're requiring people to wear masks in the hot air balloons. But organizers are saying that the visitors could surpass how many people? A million. Correct. Wow. Former Japanese Prime Minister Yoshiro Mori visited Taiwan last week when he met with President Tsai Ing-wen. He was standing, they were sitting in front of a painting of what? Oh, was that Li Donghui? No. <laughs> it was a painting of papayas. Oh, who <laughs> guessed that one? <laughs> we have a bonus question. This is a heartwarming uh, question that we have here. Uh, beachgoers in southern Taiwan found some lost baby marine creatures. What were they? Baby sea turtles. 24 of them. That's right. Oh. Baby sea turtles. Now I have to explain. It is breeding season for the turtles. What happens is the turtles crawl up on shore. They find a spot. They dig a hole and then they bury the eggs and then two months later they hatch. Now uh, these poor babies, they had a hard time finding their way back to the ocean. So we're going to end with this video. Over the weekend, beachgoers in Kanding found baby sea turtles on Da Wan Beach in southern Taiwan. The turtles were confused by lights coming from nearby hotels, so they couldn't find their way to the ocean. They could have died of exhaustion if they didn't make it to the sea. Beach resort employees quickly contacted park officials and they found 24 green baby sea turtles. The little creatures were inspected for injuries and weighed before they were brought to the ocean. The hotels dimmed their lights and the baby sea turtles were safely led onto the beach and into the sea. So this week we're talking about a big visit. My question for you both is who is the next top official that you would like to see come to Taiwan? Leslie. Well, Andrew, they say there's a lot of success in women leaders uh, fighting against COVID. And I think one of the really cool things is we have a women leader in Taiwan. I'd really like to see New Zealand Prime Minister Ardern mm. come and have a face-to-face -face meeting with Tsai. Awesome. That's a great one. Let I was thinking of a woman leader, too. The most powerful woman in America, Nancy Pelosi. That'd oh. be pretty cool. Well, that's amazing. We were all thinking of female leaders. I'm hoping the next big leader to come to Taiwan will be Queen Elizabeth. That'd be cool. <laughs> she brings her dogs. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us for this edition of Taiwan Insider. Be sure to leave us a comment below. Yes, we would love to hear from you. For Taiwan Insider, I am Natalie So. I'm Leslie Liao. And I'm Andrew Ryan. See you next week.
Taiwan Today with Natalie So. Hello and welcome to Taiwan Today. I am Natalie So. I recently had the privilege of interviewing Taiwan's digital minister, Audrey Tong, with my colleague Andrew Ryan. She gave us some fascinating insights into her lifestyle, such as working in her sleep and staying away from touchscreens. She also had some advice for other countries dealing with the pandemic. You had mentioned something really important is trusting the citizens. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, what about societies like the U.S. where people are protesting mm-hmm. the use of mm-hmm. masks? How would mm-hmm. you, what kind of advice mm-hmm. would you give a country with mm-hmm. so many different messages mm-hmm. and ideas? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, my main message is wear a mask to protect yourself from your own unwashed hands. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be a caption when you say <laughs> that. <laughs> that's right, that's right. Because uh, for all the digital technology we just talked about, uh, including masks, uh, if you don't wash your hands properly with soap or alcohol, hand sanitizers, none of this is useful. Mm-hmm. It all hinges on proper use of soap. Mm-hmm. And based on water usage data, we know that Taiwanese people are washing their hands much more vigorously. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, and that tells us only when people understand the science behind the uh, virus. Can people come up with new ways, like mm-hmm. uh, Limerick or whatever, one uh, that reminds people how to wash their hands properly with the soap. Mm. And that's essential. Minister Tong, one of the things that are very um, fascinating and impressive about you is how you've learned all the things that you learn, and you mm-hmm. learn them on your own. Mm-hmm. You're an autodidact. And, mm-hmm. and you know, I know that when you were young, um, as a junior high school student, you quit school mm-hmm. and began learning on your own. It was the blessing of the head of school. Which is, really? yeah, well, they knew you were very intelligent mm-hmm. and a genius. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and you also had your challenges as a, a young kid mm-hmm. with sure. um, mm-hmm. health issues sure, or sure, sure. Um, bullying. Mm-hmm. What kind of... Um, advice would you give to young people who may not mm-hmm. enjoy the, the traditional school setting mm-hmm. but um, can, you know, want to learn on their own? Well, in Taiwan, that's legal now, right? Back when I dropped out of junior high school, it was civil disobedience. <laughs> <laughs> but right after that, uh, we have uh, the three laws pertaining to experimental education. And now whether you want to learn on your own, that's homeschooling, uh, learn in an institution, or learn as uh, a group of families, <clears throat> who uh, learn together. And these are all legal now. Up to 10% of students in Taiwan can enroll in this kind of experimentational um, education. And also starting last year, we also introduced a new K-12 curriculum, which uh, challenges each school to come up there with their own problem-based learning curriculum uh, so that they can uh, work with the local community builders, community colleges and uh, universities with social responsibility programs and so on to design their curriculum, uh, basically making sure that children only pick the classes that uh, are are motivating to them instead of a one-size-fits-all curriculum, as was the case before. And so whether it's uh, experiments within institution or experiments outside of the institution, it's a spectrum. And so I would encourage people to look to uh, like shared projects like the OpenStreetMap, which is people making a map together, or Wikipedia, people working on an encyclopedia together, and so on, and join such groups which all have their own meetups, their local community groups, and so on, so that uh, you can uh, win at the starting line. That's mm. the thing that mm. we say in Taiwan, right? right. You, you, you want to win at the starting point, mm. so you just uh, find your own direction and race on your own. Uh, track and then you win on the starting point because nobody else is running toward that direction <laughs> and then you will you will uh, meet other people who start from different points but care about the same uh, issue. 
if you were to meet your younger self and mm -hmm. be able to speak directly sure. to the younger mm -hmm. Audrey sure, Tang, sure. what what would you mm -hmm. say to mm -hmm. that child? Sure, I would say there is a crack in everything, and that's how the light gets in. Oh, that's beautiful. That's great. Um, I've also read that you have some um, regimens to keep your mind uh, mentally sharp. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's amazing talking with you mm -hmm. and, and, and listening to you talk. Do you have any, um, you know, uh, self-care regimens to keep mm -hmm. yourself calm and, and mentally sharp? Sure. Um, I walk 15 minutes to work and I walk back. Uh, and I think walking um, and not checking my phone while work, uh, walking. <laughs> I heard you don't use a phone. You don't use a smartphone. You don't have one with you today. I, I don't. I, yeah. I really don't. Um, and what, of course, during business hours, uh, I do have a portable 5G device. Um, and anyway, it's an LG V60. Thank you. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> and it's like a small laptop. Like in mm -hmm. cabinet meetings, I can just place it on the table and start typing. Uh, mm -hmm. And so it's a kind of mini foldable computer. Mm -hmm. uh, and the point here I'm trying to make is that although I do have uh, smartphones, I leave it uh, in the office. And so when I'm working, um, I keep the phone. But when I'm walking back home or when, or when I'm walking toward the social innovation lab where I work, um, I don't have a phone uh, with me. And when, uh, for example, when I'm out hiking, I have to keep a phone, of course, for emergency contact and things like that. But then I used uh, this um, Nokia flip phone uh, that is a feature phone that doesn't have a touch screen uh, that runs KaiOS, which is Firefox mm. uh, code base. Uh, and um, it's really good because without a touch screen, there's no way that you could get addicted to the phone. <laughs> it, it's only there when you need it. I feel like you're, you're talking directly to me. Have you ever had a smartphone? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I just mentioned that I have this foldable that, LG that thing, counts as, yeah, yeah, which is a smartphone because yeah. it's a smartphone with a case that's a dual monitor. But mm -hmm. you can also pick the smartphone out uh, as a phone. But never had to deal, deal with any sort of addiction to a phone or social media or anything like that. that that's before. exactly right because I, uh, for example, I check Twitter too, yeah. but on a dedicated computer which is not connected to the intranet. Mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, only um, five minutes every half an hour. That's called a Pomodoro method. Do wow. you set an alarm? Uh, I, I set a, a, a internal an internal alarm. Wow. Okay. Like I work for 25 hours. So when it's uh, like 5 to the clock or 5 to half the oh, clock. 25 minutes. Yeah. That's right. Okay. And, then, and then those remaining five minutes are the social media time. Okay. It's great how you manage your technology mm -hmm. so well and, and mm -hmm. keep a distance from it. And I also heard that you... Um, get a full night's sleep, you make mm -hmm. sure that you sleep a certain amount of hours, is uh, that that's right? That's right, that's right. Yeah, so um, if I'm doing um, my job uh, well and there's no especially difficult problem to solve, uh, I sleep like seven and a half or eight hours a night. Uh, but if I do have to build common values out of very different positions, uh, then I'll have to work longer, that is to say sleep longer. So <laughs> I might have to sleep nine hours, like putting extra one hour in <laughs> just to come up with a uh, innovative solution. So you work while you're sleeping. That's right. How do you train yourself mm -hmm. to do that? That's really fascinating. Right. Um, so uh, it, it's very easy, actually. I just read the materials immediately before going to sleep. And I read without sounding them in my head and without passing judgments. So it's like a scanner. You just scan it. You in, read it in on bulk. a computer or? A mm, it, it could be paper. Uh -huh. uh, but I also have this iPad. 
which is technically a touch screen, but only touch it uh, using uh, Apple Pencil. Uh, so again, no um, like touch screen addiction. Uh, <laughs> and, right. So whether it's an ebook or whether it's a, a large real printed paper book, uh, I just flip it immediately before going to bed, uh, and then um, say to myself that I will wake up with a solution, uh, and then I sleep however long it takes. If it's really difficult, I may have to sleep for ten hours. Uh, that's the longest. <laughs> <laughs> and then wake up with a solution. I, I think I'm going to have to try that tonight. That yeah. sounds yeah. amazing. That's yeah. right. That's so. right. Now, Minister Tang, you're one of the most recognizable government ministers, ministers here in Taiwan. Mm -hmm. uh, we've seen, I mean, you in a Vogue shoot, mm -hmm. photo shoot. I mean, you're, mm -hmm. you're a, a, an yeah. almost iconic figure. In fact, we have mm -hmm. these little... Look at this fan art <laughs> we yeah. have. That's right. Origami robots. <laughs> fan arts of Minister Tang here. Mm -hmm. I'm curious to know, how do you interact with your public mm -hmm. persona? Mm -hmm. I mean, is this... Something that the the younger mm, version of mm, Audrey Tang mm, would have been surprised by? Not at all. I mean, I publish in Creative Commons uh, everything uh, that I do anyway mm -hmm. before uh, going into the cabinet. And after going into the cabinet, because it's supposedly public domain, right? It's public work, public service. So I also publish under Creative Commons uh, all the interviews uh, and actually transcript or video of all the meetings that I chair. It's called Radical Transparency. The initial idea is that it makes uh, journalism easier, mm. especially investigative journalism, because you don't have to get a scoop. You can <laughs> work with this entire context. But then uh, something weird happens. Uh, people who work on hip-hop songs, rappers, uh, started <laughs> taking those uh, interviews as samples uh, and then putting it into their songs. Really? Uh, like there's a Japanese band called Dos Monos uh, that just remixes uh, my interview and into this very popular uh, <laughs> rap song. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I, I didn't have that that in mind <laughs> when I published the interview a video, but I guess that works, right? Mm -hmm. So for, for me, um, I don't over-identify with what people mm. uh, recreate or remix. Uh, I think it's just like a Da Vinci painting Mona Lisa, right? The Mona Lisa is uh, the name of the artwork, but mm. I'm not uh, identifying with that figure. So you would see your public persona mm. as being part of the public domain? That's right, that's right. Okay. What, exactly. What, what would the child uh, uh -huh. version of you uh -huh. have thought about the person you are today? Well, I think it would be very interesting, right? It's uh, a lot of fun. And uh, when I was a child, uh, I worked uh, with the internet community, uh, specifically the Gutenberg Project, uh, which are uh, scans of those out of copyright uh, Creative Commons. Uh, well, at that time, it's not called Creative Commons, but it was in the Commons. Uh, and so people digitized those out of copyright works, and that formed uh, my my build on uh, my uh, young uh, learning. Right. So when I drop out of junior high school, these are the most immediately accessible material for me to read. Uh, and incidentally, uh, they were all written before the First World War because things written during or after the First World War were still under copyright mm. back then. So my public domain works are very optimistic, <laughs> and, and that shaped my main character. <laughs> right, I, I'm uh, very optimistic about technology, about how uh, democracy could work, and so on, which is a very rare condition nowadays. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. Okay. Right. And you're still optimistic. Uh, I'm still optimistic. I'm, I'm hopelessly optimistic, mm. uh, because my, my build on, my, my uh, main reading uh, when I was a 14 year, 15 year uh, old, uh, is primarily things written before the First That's World wonderful. War. That's wonderful. You're also yeah. very mm. calm. And, and in the face of all the different stresses sure. and interviews, how mm -hmm. do you keep yourself so mm -hmm. calm and collected? And 
as I said, I, I'm just enjoying myself during daytime. I, I do my real work, <laughs> stressful work. Uh, at night at when night. you're sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, when I'm sleeping. Yeah, so, so, so that's why I feel so calm and collected, because I'm just mm. enjoying myself now. So we've been having such a great time with you, and it's been great to speak with our digital minister, Audrey Tang, telling us a lot of secrets about her life and um, what Taiwan has been doing with COVID-19. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Natalie So. And I'm Andrew Ryan. Thank you for listening. Live long and prosper. That was our interview with our brilliant digital minister, Audrey Tong, who has done much to help us contain COVID-19 with digital tools. Next up, our weekly news quiz. Are you ready to take the Taiwan news quiz? This is our lightning round. That means we have 60 seconds on the clock. And in the hot seat today, we have Natalie So and Leslie Liao. Are you guys ready? I'm ready. I guess so. Are you ready at home? All right, you can take it right along with us. Go. On Monday, Taiwan welcomed the first representative from where? The US. Somaliland. Oh. Somaliland. Oh. A blow to freedom of the press. That's how President Tsai described the arrest of who Jimmy on Monday? That's right. He is the media mogul from Hong Kong, the founder of Next Media and Apple Daily. Crowds of people headed up into the mountains north of Taipei late on Wednesday night. What were they hoping to see? Perseid media shower. That's right. Uh, what European mayor is set to visit Taipei Prague. at the end of August as part of a 90-person delegation? Prague. Yes, 90? Prague. That is wow. correct. Prague Mayor Zdeniek Hrib. He's going to be uh, traveling with the president <laughs> of the Czech Senate. The Taiwan International Balloon Festival is underway until August 30th. Now it was delayed due to the pandemic and they're requiring people to wear masks in the hot air balloons. But organizers are saying that the visitors could surpass how many people? A million. Correct. Wow. Former Japanese Prime Minister Yoshiro Mori visited Taiwan last week when he met with President Tsai Ing-wen. He was standing, they were sitting in front of a painting of what? Oh, was that Li Donghui? No. <laughs> it was a painting of papayas. Oh, <laughs> we guessed that one. <laughs> we have a bonus question. This is a heartwarming uh, question that we have here. Uh, beachgoers in southern Taiwan found some lost baby marine creatures. What were they? Baby sea turtles, 24 of them. That's right, <laughs> baby sea turtles. Now I have to explain, it is breeding season for the turtles. What happens is the turtles crawl up on shore, they find a spot, they dig a hole and then they bury the eggs and then two months later they hatch. Now uh, these poor babies, they had a hard time finding their way back to the ocean. That's it for Taiwan Today. Thanks for joining me this week. I'm Natalie So, and I'll see you next week. John Van Trieste. And the destination. Jinmen, October 1949. In late October 1949, the island of Jinmen waited. For forces stationed on the island, the situation seemed desperate. Within sight of the island lay the major Chinese city of Xiamen, which had fallen earlier in the month to the Chinese communists. Soon, the communist advance would take the rest of the mainland, 
leaving Taiwan and a few other islands the only remnants of the Republic of China. A communist invasion of Jinmen was expected next, and it would come. But at the Battle of Gu Ningtou, fought that October, that invasion was pushed back, ensuring the communist advance would come no further. Here to tell us more about this battle is Ms. Huang, an official at Jinmen National Park, the home of the Gu Ningtou War Museum. Ms. Huang says the idea of Jinmen as a strategically important island goes back a long way. The island's name itself, literally Golden Gate, hints at its strategic importance. The Ming Dynasty, which lasted from the 14th to the 17th century, built defensive works on the island. It is, Ms. Huang says, the door to China's southeast coast, and this geographical importance is the reason why the island's history has a military character. As the closest of these coastal islands to Taiwan, Jinmen played a critical role at the end of the Chinese Civil War, this time as the gate to the Taiwan Strait instead. It remained in the hands of Republic of China forces, and its defense was linked with the defense of Taiwan, the Republic's new base after its retreat from the mainland. For the garrison stationed on Jinmen, this was serious business, a fight for their side's survival. The island's defenders included a number of units that had seen action on the mainland before the retreat to Taiwan. The celebrated general, Hu Lian, was among those in command. They were troops with some experience. But as Ms. Huang sees it, their weaponry was not ideal. What about the American-built M5A1 tank, later dubbed the Bear of Jinmen for its role in this battle? The contribution may have been real, but in Ms. Huang's view, the tanks themselves were not as impressive as their nickname might imply. She says they'd been given to Republic of China forces after World War II, once the U.S. was done with them. Still, the weaponry was what it was. After the Republic's own bitter fight in World War II, not to mention its ongoing fight against Chinese communists, there wasn't much in the way of impressive weaponry lying around for them to use. They fixed up the tanks and worked with what they had. One tank in particular may have changed the course of the battle completely by accident. On the afternoon of October 24th, this tank had been out on maneuvers on one of the island's beaches. During the day's exercises, it became completely stuck in the sand. Nothing anyone tried could get it to budge. Into the dark early hours of the 25th, there were still soldiers out on that beach trying to get that tank to move. They didn't know it, of course, but they were in the right place at the right time. A communist invasion plan had been set in motion. It called for an initial landing, followed by the arrival of reinforcements once a position was secured. 
but according to Ms. Huang, not everything had gone to plan. The island of Jinmen is shaped like an hourglass. Ms. Huang believes the communists had hoped to land in the narrow land bridge that forms the island center, cutting the two halves of the island off from one another. They'd picked an appropriately dark night, but they hadn't accounted for the seasonal winds. The makeshift communist flotilla seems to have been blown off course, approaching a beach that was not the intended landing site. It was a beach on the island's thicker western side, a beach where just then a tank happened to be caught in the sand. Ms. Huang says the tank fired out into the water, and it happened to hit a boat carrying munitions straight on. By the light of the flames on the water and the signal flares that had started to go up, it became clear that the communist force numbered in the thousands. The invasion force came ashore, but without the element of surprise, the defenders now had a chance to organize a response. For 56 hours, the island of Jinmen became a battlefield. The communist force managed to push its way into the island, including into a nearby village, where intense street fighting with Jinmen's defenders broke out. As the clashes continued, it became clear that the communist plan had hit another problem. Despite the successful landing, the boats used in the invasion had become stranded on shore, and the defenders destroyed whatever they found, finishing the flotilla off. Without the boats to carry them, the intended backup force never arrived, and the invasion proved unsustainable. On the third day, those communist troops left standing on the island surrendered. More than 1,200 Republic of China soldiers and even more communists lay dead. The Battle of Guningtou wasn't the last time that Jinmen would be attacked. The 1950s bought heavy artillery bombardments, supplying the material for Jinmen's famous kitchen knives. But Ms. Huang says these later artillery battles weren't as significant as Gu Ningtou. After Gu Ningtou, the island of Jinmen was never again invaded. The battle blocked any further communist advance towards Taiwan, creating the cross-strait status quo we have today. Jinmen remained a front line to be sure, but Ms. Huang says that from here on out, the island's position as a bulwark held. Through the years of the Cold War, the governments continued to look at Jinmen and the islands of Mazu to the north and see a shield without which Taiwan could not be defended. According to Ms. Huang, the United States often asked whether it might not be better to abandon Jinmen and Mazu, those island outposts so far from Taiwan itself. She says the government wouldn't hear of it. The Gu Ningtou War Museum was founded by the military in 1984 to commemorate the battle and honor those who died defending Jinmen. At the time, a visit to the museum would have been unusual for most people. That's because right up until 1992, Jinmen remained under military control. 
Only the original inhabitants and military personnel were allowed on the island. By 1993, though, tourism had begun on the island. And in 1995, the government founded Jinmen National Park, one of the island's main attractions. Since 2000, when the military handed over the war museum to the park, visitors attracted by the area's beauty and heritage have also been able to learn about what happened at Guningtou in October 1949, a battle that changed not only the history of Jinmen itself, but also the history of Taiwan. I'm John Van Trieste, and I hope you'll join me again next week for another journey through time. Listen, are you listening? <laughs> this is the sound of my country. This is the sound of Taiwan. <laughs> Taiwan, a small island with a whole world of sounds. This is Taiwan Explained, brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. It's not every day that top-ranking U.S. officials visit Taiwan. In today's Taiwan Explained, we're going to tell you just how rare it is. And to tell us all about it is Catherine Wei. Welcome, Catherine. Hi. So this visit by the U.S. Secretary of Health and Human Services, Alex Azar, was a big deal. Tell us why. Azar's visit drew a lot of attention. That's because he's the highest-ranking U.S. cabinet official to visit Taiwan since the two countries cut formal ties in 1979. And so by highest-ranking, what you're saying is there's a line of succession to the presidency, right? Yes. So if anything happens to the current president, Azar is 12th in line. And I guess that something would have to happen to the next 11 people as well, <laughs> right, right? the first 11 people. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, well, tell us what other top um, U.S. officials have visited Taiwan since 1979. So there were six in total, if you count Azar, and three of them visited during President Li Donghui's term. U.S. Trade Representative Carla Anderson Hills visited Taiwan in 1992. Secretary of Transportation Federico Peña visited two years later in 1994. Secretary of Energy Bill Richardson visited in 1998. Since then, all the other presidents have only received one top U.S. official during their time in office. Secretary of Transportation Rodney Slater visited when Chen Shui-bian was president in year 2000. EPA Chief Gina McCarthy visited during Ma Ying-jeou's term in 2014. And now, the most recent visitor is Secretary of Health Alex Azar. He probably won't be the last cabinet official to visit Taiwan. That's because of the Taiwan Travel Act, which U.S. President Donald Trump signed into law in 2018. This act encourages high-level visits by U.S. officials to Taiwan and vice versa. So essentially, that's just six officials in the last 41 years. That's, that's right. not that many. But it will be interesting to see how things develop with the Taiwan Travel Act in place. Thanks again, Catherine. And uh, that is our Taiwan Explained for the week. Are you listening? <laughs> this is the sound of my country. This is the sound of Taiwan. 
可以头前来，别弄我的剑。我以手伸进口口的口。Taiwan, a small island with a whole world of sounds. 在中国中国中国中国中国中国中国中国中国中国中国中国中国中国中国中国中国中国中国中国中国中国中国中国中国中国中国中国中国中国中国中国中国中国中国中国中国中国中国中国中国 Again, that's in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kilohertz. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to PO Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Again, that's PO Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Or send an email to rti at rti.org.tw. Again, that's rti at rti.org.tw. Also visit us on Facebook. The address is fb.me/radiotaiwaninternational. Once again, on Facebook, we're located at fb.me/radiotaiwaninternational for videos, photos, and news of interest from Taiwan. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International.